Hello and welcome to episode three of the Understanding Rome podcast. My name is Agnes Crawford and I'm a qualified guide in Rome with over 20 years experience. You can find me at Understanding Rome on Instagram and Substack. And today, our chronological gallop through the history of Rome will see us take a foray into the history of the Etruscans. And we'll be talking today about two pieces, the Apollo of Vey and the Pyrgi tablets. In the first two episodes of this podcast, I spoke of hazy legends and the tangible legacies built upon them. Today, we begin to emerge from the mists of legend into the realm of history, specifically the year 509 BCE, as we now think of it. The Romans were, of course, unaware that something momentous would happen 509 or so years later. It was in that year that the last king of Rome, Tarquinius Superbus, Tarquin the Proud, was overthrown. He was the last of the Tarquins, the final three of those seven kings. And Livy, amongst others, tells us that those final three kings of Rome were Etruscan. Legend tells us of seven kings, though surely in approximately 250 years they had been rather more. Legend has a way of distilling fact into something more memorable. The tyrannical Tarquinius Superbus was the son, or perhaps the grandson, of Tarquinius Priscus, the first of those three Etruscan kings of Rome. But first, let's consider who the Etruscans were. In fact, they called themselves Rasna, or Rasena. We call them Etruscans because the Romans did. It is often spoken of as a mysterious, exotic, and somehow other civilization, a common trope, which I at first lazily accepted. After this initial antipathy, they were, I felt many years ago, too foreign, too mysterious, too different. But I came to embrace this perceived exotic otherness. After all, it was, I thought, this mystery, which made them so interesting. In fact, the Etruscans, it transpires, were anything but other. They were a canny civilization built on trading the metals abundant in Etruria across the Mediterranean. Merchants, not mysterious at all. The Etruscans were a people who flourished especially between the 8th and the 5th centuries BCE, ultimately to be absorbed into Rome and whose language is even now only partially understood. It is entirely separate from other Indo-European languages. Though it is written using characters borrowed from Greece, the words are entirely different. It appears that when the Etruscans came to write down their language, they borrowed the alphabet from the first Greeks in Italy. And indeed, many of these Greek letters are reversed, and the script, written in Etruscan, runs from right to left, as in most Semitic languages. Largely concentrated between the rivers Tiber and Arno, 
So between Florence in the north and Rome in the south, the area occupied by the Etruscans includes areas of the modern-day regions of Lazio and Tuscany. The Romans called them the Tusci, from which Toscana or Tuscany, or Etruschi, which is probably an origin, an Umbrian term, from which Etruria becomes the term used for the area they occupied. And there are conflicting theories about where the origins of the Etruscans lay. Herodotus, the Greek historian, writing in the 5th century BCE, claimed them to have been a people indigenous to Asia Minor, specifically Lydia in what is now Western Turkey. Herodotus claimed they fled famine and a tyrannical ruler and settled in the west of central Italy, where the land was fertile and natural resources abundant. Another theory was put forward by Dionysius of Halicarnassus, writing in the first century BCE. He claimed that the Etruscans were an autochthonous people, native to central Italy, who had come into contact early with the eastern Mediterranean, a close contact which explained a cultural cross-pollination. This theory of a people indigenous to central Italy would especially be espoused during the fascist period, which didn't welcome the idea of an immigrant civilization. In 1928, an Etruscan tomb was discovered near Tarquinia. It had already been much depleted by looting, and one significant object found was a mere fragment of a vase. It bore the name Rutile Hippocrates, suggesting the Etruscanizing of a Greek name. This, the grandeur of the structure, it is 35 metres in diameter, plus a plausible date of the 2nd century BCE, have been seen as suggesting a link to Demaratus of Corinth, who settled at Tarquinia in the 7th century BCE and married a local noblewoman. Demaratus of Corinth is traditionally considered the father of Tarquinius Priscus, the fifth king of Rome, and the first of the Etruscan rulers of the city, it is to Tarquinius Priscus that the eminently tangible projects in Rome of the Cloaca Maxima, the draining of the valley of the Circus Maximus and the Forum, and the construction of the Temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus on the Capitoline Hill are attributed. Now, when thinking of the Etruscan tomb discovered in 1928, near Tarquinia, there are some definite leaps of faith in identifying this tomb overlooking the Tyrrhenian Sea, which is still today called the Tumulus of the King. But it is enormously evocative of that blurring of hazy legend and hard fact that pervades the Mediterranean. As we mentioned, Rome's first Etruscan king, Tarquinius Priscus, was perhaps the father or the grandfather of Tarquinius Superbus, Tarquin the Proud, the last king of Rome. 
Tarquinius Superbus claimed his throne in a bloody tale of matricide and fratricide and the assassination of his predecessor, Servius Tullius, the sixth king of Rome. There are many versions of the tale of the fall of the despotic Tarquin the Proud. Was his body decapitated and thrown into the Tiber to become the nucleus around which the grain of the Tarquins would gather, forming the Tiber Island? Geology would, of course, suggest otherwise, but it is a good story. Whether he was killed or fled, the result was the same. He was overthrown so that a democratic system could be put in place. The res publica, government as a public matter, was born, and the Roman Republic was founded in what we now call 509 BCE. The Tarquins are a reminder that the Roman message which would gather traction during the empire of a clear conquest of Italic peoples is overly simplistic. After all, the last three kings of Rome were Etruscans. It is, as they say, complicated. What then was happening just north of Rome as the Etruscans were sent packing and the Republic founded? From the Tiber to the Arno, Etruria was a league of uh, 12 settlements of the civilization, which, as we've mentioned, called themselves Razna. The closest of these 12 settlements to Rome and the richest was Vey. As Rome was emerging from legend into history and the Republic was being founded, Vey was building a grand temple. The settlement of Vey is now part of a vast and bucolic regional park where wild horses and waterfalls can be found a stone's throw from the city. In the 7th century BCE, a wildly important sanctuary had been dedicated here to Minerva, and as the Roman Republic was born, in about 510 BCE, a new temple was added to the sanctuary by the wealthy veins, and it was dedicated to Apollo. In 1916, excavations discovered terracotta decorations of the temple, including a painted statue of Apollo himself, which once formed part of a group of statues straddling the summit of the temple's pitched roof. Apollo strides forward, his darkly painted muscular calves emerging from a chiton, the folds of the drapery of his tunic clinging to his body. His small but perkily pointed penis is clearly visible below the cloth. His once outstretched arms are long since lost, and his face bears the beatific smile of timelessly divine amusement, indicative of a clear stylistic connection with archaic Greece. The Apollo of Veo is one of two works of art, which brought tears to my eyes the first time I saw them. The other is Simone Martini's Annunciation in the Uffizi in Florence. I think in both cases it wouldn't have mattered if I knew anything of them or not. 
It was some sort of inexplicable reaction to beauty and proportion and the timeless humanity in observed detail. In the case of Apollo, I first remember seeing it in 2004, soon after a major restoration, and he was on show down in the Nymphaeum at the exquisite late Renaissance Villa Giulia home to the Etruscan Museum. It was an exquisite setting. I had him entirely to myself in this glorious late Renaissance grotto, which certainly added to the atmosphere. But I wonder if the knowledge of how Vey's fortunes would turn perhaps had something to do with my reaction. Because a century or so after Apollo and his beatific smile had been made to top the grand temple at Vey, the wealthiest city of the Etruscan League, it would be Vey, the first city to fall to Rome. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Let's instead imagine Apollo, newly placed atop the temple soon before 500 BCE, oblivious to the events in Rome which would herald Vey's demise. One version of the overthrow of Tarquinius Superbus tells us that rather than being decapitated and thrown into the Tiber to form the nucleus of the Tiber island, after his overthrow, the deposed king instead fled Rome to Caire, not far from Vey, and another very important city of the Etruscan League. Caire, which the Romans would call Caire Vitus, Old Caire, and which we call Cerveteri, occupied a bluff of volcanic tufo inland, but looking out over the Tyrrhenian Sea. The Greeks called the Etruscans Tyrrhenoi. The Tyrrhenian Sea is simply the Sea of the Etruscans. And Caire was one of the most important settlements on the coast, a town with three ports. One of these ports was Pirgi, at what is now Santa Severa, as the Roman Republic was being founded and the Temple of Apollo was being built at Vey, in Pirgi, the dedication of temples cemented the alliance between the Phoenicians and the Etruscans. One of these was consecrated to the supreme Etruscan goddess Uni, identified with the Phoenician goddess Astarte. Three small gold-inscribed sheets, one in Phoenician and two in Etruscan, cemented the dedication of this temple and were found in 1964. Their discovery was important for offering a bilingual document to facilitate the translation of the Etruscan language and also in providing further evidence for the Etruscan-Punic alliance in the Western Mediterranean, referred to, for example, by Polybus, writing in the 2nd century BCE, some three centuries after the Pyrgi tablets were incised. Etruscan is, as we have mentioned, an anomalous language. It is not part of the Indo-European group of languages, and it makes use of an archaic Greek 
alphabet, like Phoenician and other Semitic languages, it is written from right to left. The lacunae in the understanding of the Etruscan language are the product of a high imperial antipathy to Etruscan culture. While the Republic and the early empire vaunted Etruria as noble and ancient, we can think of Augustus's friend, patron of Virgil Mycenaeus, who made much of his Etruscan ancestry. Claudius, the fourth emperor, wrote a history of Etruria and indeed of the Carthaginians, and possibly considered his family, the gens Claudia, to be of Etruscan descent. The histories of Claudius are known from secondary mentions by, for example, Suetonius, but don't survive. Their presumed erasure in the later empire is coherent with a Roman narrative of uh, unambiguous conquest the ancient and material sophistication of a civilization so close to Rome, which predated the legend of Romulus and his settlement of mud huts, and which provided Rome with her last three kings, offered an element of doubt incompatible with Roman supremacy. Ultimately, Etruria would succumb to Roman might, beginning with Vey, which fell to Rome after 10 years of war in 396 BCE. The entire adult male population was killed and women and children enslaved. Just a century earlier, as a grand temple was dedicated to Apollo at Vey, and as the people of Caere cemented their alliance with Carthage, the Etruscans were seemingly oblivious to the effect the overthrow of the last king of Rome and the foundation of the Republic would have upon their prosperous cities. Thank you very much for listening. And if you'd like to subscribe to my Substack, I'm Understanding Rome. And as I mentioned, Instagram, Understanding Rome, you can find me there. Thank you very much indeed. Goodbye until next time.